You ever sit down at your dinner table at night after you cook a long meal? Took you hours. You sit down at the dinner table and you start to eat it and you just look down and say, this sucks. Well, now you don't have to. Go to unitedharvest.com. Yeah, it's an ad. Tricked you. Unitedharvest.com to get high quality cuts of meat. I'm talking cross wasami angus beef. I'm talking American grass-fed lamb. I'm talking Hooterite pork. Canadian Hooterite pork. This stuff is incredible. I promise you will not be disappointed. Go to the website, unitedharvest.com. Type in the referral code, the promo code, FRIENDS15, all caps, FRIENDS15, for 15% off your first order, unitedharvest.com. This is the show with Cannon Brown. If, if you want to do something that no one else has done or, or no one else does, you've got to do something that no one else will do. And part of that is just constantly overcoming failure and to, to keep pushing and mentally p- propel yourself over the hump. Welcome back to another week of the show. I'm your host, Cannon Brown, and it's getting chilly outside. Finally. We're in. We're about in the winter time here, and I know everybody that's sitting in snow right now. You're probably thinking, "No, it's winter, man." Uh, where I'm at, well, it just hit 50 degrees here in Arizona, okay, and that says to me it's winter here in Arizona, okay. We we had 90 degree weather last week, um, and it happens like this all the time. It just takes a real hard dive, and it feels very good. I am benefiting from it a bunch. I'm a big fan. I've got a great guest for you guys this week, as always. I, I, I like to bring you the best guests. I don't think I have any bad guests, of course. Today's guest is Mr. Cassidy Hayes. I'm familiar with HF Genetics and Cassidy, but before this interview, we hadn't really had a relationship. I mean, I hadn't really met him. We just had talked on the phone. But I thought we kind of hit it off pretty well, honestly. Uh, I thought it was a good interview, uh, and we cover a lot of different topics, not just his life, but, I mean, we kind of delve into a lot of different things. I love my tangents. I like to delve into as many things as possible. I like people's opinion, and Cassidy was very upfront about his opinion on pretty much everything that I brought up. I think everything I brought up, he gave me his honest opinion on everything, and I really appreciated that. I tell every guest, if you're going to come on, I'm like, I want it to be pers- like personal. Like I, I want it to sound like we're just on a conversation, on a phone call. That's what I tell every guest. Like If we can just go through a phone call and record it, I'm good, I'm good with that. Just be personable and personable. Uh, and those are interchangeable, I guess. But and, I, and that's what I told Cassidy, and he hit a home run. He did incredible. So, all right. I talk too much, as always. That's enough of me talking. Let's do it, Mr. Cassidy Hayes. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. What have you been up to today? Oh, today we're kind of in the final blast of trying to breed sows for springborns. Got about a week left of that, and then we'll probably shut down. Kind of doing that, and then trying to get boars collected and semen shipped out to people. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it's a pretty busy time of year for you guys. Yes. Uh, trying to collect well, I, and trying to send that stuff out. It's 
I don't know. I used to think my life or, or was pretty seasonal, and now it just seems like it's nonstop. <laughs> it just <laughs> seems like everybody would. I think everybody would say that these days, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Everything just kind of overlapping with each other, and then you throw a kid into it, and it really gets chaotic. <laughs> I bet it does. Well, there's so many shows these days. And uh, there's more and more people kind of getting into it to where you're right. There isn't really any seasons for it. I mean, everybody's if you've got a herd that's pretty decent and you can market pigs, you kind of have a full time job now. Yeah, it's you know, there's shows year round from coast to coast, basically. And if you can find the markets and the feeders that want to feed those things, I mean, you can easily justify having having South Fairland and marketing year round. And I think something that's changed a lot for us too the last couple of years is the whole concept of making these things older to make sure we hit our weight marks like we need to, mm. you know, I guess combination of these show pig genetics getting more and more lined up and, you know, antibiotics getting removed from, from feeds it just really slowed these things down and, where there used to be gaps from season to season, you know, those age adjustments kind of closed the gaps for us and it's just made it kind of a year round gig. Yeah. So, so you're a fan of those slower grown hogs then? I don't know if I'm a fan of it. I mean, I guess an ideal world you'd, you'd want to be able to teach kids that are raising these things and try to mirror what happens in the real world as closely as possible. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, I mean, most families that are involved in this, their ultimate goal is to win a pig show. And if to win a pig show, you know, in most instances requires you to have a little extra maturity and stoutness of feature to you. And the easiest way to attain that oftentimes is age. You kind of are forced to conform to some degree. So, you know, it's it's hard to sell pigs if you're not winning. So. For sure kind of have to do what you have to do but I guess me you know I'm old enough now I you know I can still recall back a time when you know you could win a lot of shows with a five and a half to six month old one and yeah. that wasn't that wasn't uncommon and nowadays if you're any younger than seven it's really tough um so I don't know like anything I guess everything changes and evolves and if you don't kind of constantly evolve with it you can get left in the dust yeah yeah it's really interesting to i know that it was happening more often a couple years ago or maybe it still is but i remember when some hogs were winning like state fairs that were like 11 10 months old and everybody was kind of freaking out about it at the time but there was nothing you could really do because the hogs still looked pretty dang good i mean they didn't look stale it was just an old hogs kind of slow maturing and some people like those and some people don't. That's why I wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, but well, it's interesting it's, your thoughts on the process. You know, I remember whenever I first started judging shows, a person that always been a lot to me and that was a quite a bit of a mentor to me, I guess for 20 years now was Chuck Real. And Chuck always told me, he said, Never stick your neck out there and say a pig is fresher. Make sure you always say they're fresher appearing because 
feeders are so good these days, they can fool you quite a bit. And there's no doubt about it, especially the last few years. You know, after a show's over, you know, you hear that this one that won was nine months old, this one was 10 months old, this one was 11 months old. And some in some of those cases, you're like, oh my gosh, like that one I would have never guessed was that old. So, I mean, it's there's no doubt there's some guys out there that are incredibly talented that can hold those things together and make them look fresh as a daisy when they're really not that young. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that's a good kind of motto to live by when you're judging shows. Cause you never, I guess you never really know unless you're like getting your hands on them and it's not like you're in a hog show feeling backs of hogs, you know? So <laughs> that's a, no. I think that's a good piece of advice. And you're not judging cattle on the hill in Denver yeah. with a DVD sheet in front of you. or Exactly. In- that. I mean, what you see is what you're trying to gauge. So don't put yourself in a situation where, you know, you can make a false call. So, yeah. And, and I mean, it's not just subjugated to the hog industry either. I mean, there's, they're getting to be pretty good in every single species about making sure that they, they're looking good without maybe looking the part underneath. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's getting to be pretty interesting. That's for sure. Totally now, agree. What, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Kind of brought that along? Is it the extra competitive drive? Is it? Is it people want the banner? What? What is it that makes people kind of go full bore? Um, it doesn't matter if this is a it, what we think it is. We're going to go out there and make it look what we want it to look like. What do you think that it is? Are you are you talking about mainly like the age adjustment? I'm talking mainly like fitting. Uh, especially when it comes to, I don't know, I, the stuff that you can do with hair. I mean, you can't really do any things with hogs, but, uh, the stuff that you can do with hair on, on goats, sheep and cattle. I mean, that, that stuff is really, really interesting. I'm just curious as to where that kind of started. I, and I don't know if you have the answer. So my dad and I have this conversation quite a bit. You know, I can remember back around like 2000, whenever we really started showing a bunch, you know, it, You'd hear stories a lot of times about you go to a show and there'd be a pig pop up and win that a kid paid 300 bucks for and didn't know what they had and didn't do a very good job with it, but the, the pig was just that good and it won. You don't see that much anymore because this <laughs> yeah. deal is so competitive that if you don't go in there with a pretty full bag of tricks and check all those things, all those boxes of maximizing skin and hair freshness making sure they're appropriate in terms of fill and, and kind of maintaining their composition to a T. and you know i'd say the influx of all of these camps that have really uh caused people to up their game on showmanship um ha- have narrowed the playing field there on the top end when it comes to getting them stuck and if you can't do each of those things you can't even put yourself in a position to have a pig good enough to win, you know, or, or a goat or, or cattle, kind of whatever it may be. It's just gotten so darn competitive and people have figured out ways that they can, they can put their competitiveness, competitiveness within their control. If that makes sense. No way. Uh, yeah. It does make a lot of sense. And I would say that thing, that trend really started quite a bit to me in the last 10 years. Um, and every year it's just gotten a little bit more intense and more intense. But, you know, I can still remember 
you know, early 2000s, we went to went to San Antonio and didn't really know what we were doing. And we had a Yorkshire Barra that that was at the time that they still sifted everything. And Brian Hines and Marty Rock were judging. And I had a nice Yorkshire Barra. We raised him on wire. He never had shavings or anything. He was raised on an elevated wire deck oh, with wow. a rubber mat on one end of the pen. Just got thrown feet every day. We, we really didn't know at all what we were doing, but it was just a good pig. We went up there, and we made the sale, and I think we're fourth in class with that thing. You know, when they sifted, you know, I would probably gauge that at this point in time where they don't have a sift, that that bear might have been first or second in his class um, there at San Antonio, and that would never happen now. I mean, you couldn't even, <laughs> you know, something like that, a, a, a judge would be able, when a pig like that walked in, to look at probably his toes and his skin and hair, and he'd go straight to that 18-wheeler. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. But it, it's just it's changed a lot because of that. But I, I, I think it's neat. Um, like anything, college football, pro sports, you know, everything, they've, they've found ways to allow themselves to be more competitive, and we've certainly done that in the livestock industry. Yeah. No, I think you're right, and I think you're right with the timeline too. I mean, and it's been talked about a bunch, uh, and I've talked about it on this podcast before. Just the the time, uh, uh, like, and the difference that it's made. I mean, like you said, it's probably been ten years since you could have a kid that didn't really know what he was doing buy a hog uh, from a lottery sale for three hundred bucks and win the show just because the judge knew what it was without really having skin and hair and everything. But I think you're right. This past 10 years has, has made it pretty hard for that kid to do what he would, what he would have been able to do 10 years ago. It's, it's interesting. Yes, it is. I, I, I always try to relate so much of it to sports, you know, cause this, this is our sport basically. And, and it's amazing. The similarities, um, I was reading an article a couple days ago. It was talking about LeBron James and Russell Wilson, who, you know, in their sports are probably as elite and competitive athletes as there are. And they're, they're competing at the level that they are at an age that most of the time you see athletes really start to fall off. And they were talking about how they each spend over a million dollars a year just on their body health between – chefs, um, physical therapists, physical trainers, massage therapists, things of that nature. And those things like equivalent kind of over into the livestock deal when you talk about skin and hair, tanning, managing and, and understanding how to utilize different feed supplements and whatnot to maximize those animals. It's, it's kind of the same story when you transfer it over to sport. It really is, and I actually saw that news article as well, and I don't know about you, I really wasn't surprised. I mean, it it looked like a lot of money. I mean, of course, a million dollars just focused on their health and well-being, but for how much those guys make in terms of their contracts and, and how much they make just off of their bodies, I I really wasn't that surprised about it. And I I'm I think more people should do that. I mean, if you're a professional athlete and you're not putting some of your – money back into your body i mean that's like your body is your investment 
why wouldn't you put why wouldn't you want to build try to build that better so that it lasts longer and and you can continue to get these contracts yep yeah, yeah it's I kept whenever you get life insurance and they give you a cheaper deal if you go get you a YMCA membership oh really yeah. it's kind of the same story on that end of things yeah I kinda didn't even know that actually yeah yeah that's Found actually that pretty out. cool yeah, a couple of years ago, we got another life insurance policy, and that was part of the gig, which kind of makes sense. Yeah, you know? it really does. But really I, does. I, mean, I mean, it didn't surprise me either. A, from the standpoint of what those guys make, you know, a million dollars to them is it's probably about a thousand bucks to everybody else, and and your body is ultimately your investment in what you make your living with, and it's amazing, you know, especially LeBron James. The amount of miles that he has on his body in terms of minutes, playoff runs, the guy's been in the finals for, what, 10 straight years? You know, and still to, to hardly ever get hurt and to to play at that level constantly. You just you kind of know in the back of your mind that that guy's got to do something that pretty much no one else is doing from the standpoint of managing his body. And it was kind of neat to read that article and just see kind of to what lengths – he goes to to be able to, to constantly play at that level. Pretty neat stuff. It, it really is, and and I think that's a perfect analogy for the show industry as well, because we're seeing so many, we're seeing a lot of people kind of delve into this deal more than just a hobby. I mean, I would assume that you look at this as more than just a hobby. Uh, even the average showman is looking at this as, as more than just a hobby these days. There's a lot of money going into this, and, and then and there's a lot of products being made in this industry. In terms of your guys' operation, how do you guys invest back into some of these products that might help your herd? And I don't know if you want to give me any specific products, but do you guys put a lot of emphasis on investing back into uh, your herd, kind of like we made the analogy with the sports? Yeah, and I, what I guess you would probably mean by that is probably just from a health standpoint. Exactly. Oh, yeah, and I would say anybody that does this for a living, such as ourselves, that if you don't do it, it may not catch up with you this season or next season or the season after that, but eventually you'll have a problem and it'll, it'll end up offsetting what the expense would have been to maintain your herd health uh, over that period where things were good. You know, we, especially since the antibiotic uh, usage was limited in feeds, we've, we've gone through great lengths, like many guys, of using vaccines as our friend. And we vaccinate pretty religiously, both babies, sows, boars, uh, kind of year-round for a multitude of different things. Um. We go through pretty great lengths of trying to make sure that that we have VFDs in line to, to medicate when we need to, especially during breeding season and farrowing season. Um, we invest quite a bit um, in the feed that we make for boars, especially during breeding season, to try to make sure that we amplify their fertility and their, their sperm concentration and viability as much as possible, you know. Just things like that um, have made a big difference for us. Um, 
about 10 years ago, we, we kind of dropped the ball on our herd health. And it was, it was specifically from a quarantining standpoint, we didn't quarantine a set of gilts long enough and brought them into the sow barn too quickly. And we had a severe PERS outbreak that, that set us back, you know, a good year. Uh, it took us probably a year to kind of rebound and get back to where we were. And it scared us enough to where, you know, that extra expense that you, you kind of bite your tongue with a little bit and you cringe just a little whenever you got to write that check uh, from the standpoint of vaccinations. We just didn't even flinch at that point. Just started doing it, started doing it religiously. And, you know, knock on wood, since that incident about 10 years ago, we haven't had a severe health problem. Well, that's one thing that, I mean, those are the uh, life lessons, right? <laughs> I mean, that that's what gets you on the right track. I'm curious, um, in terms of, you glossed over this a little bit, and I wanted to go back, but in terms of specializing your guys' boar's feed uh, to help their sperm count, well, I don't know anything about this. Can you explain this to me a little bit more? Yeah, so, I didn't even know feed had anything to do with it. So my master's degree was actually in nutrition, and while I was at a and I did some research uh, on that end of things. And there was a lot of research that showed that elevated protein levels and, and along with that enhanced levels of certain essential uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids were directly correlated to sperm count and, and uh, concentrations on that end of things. So after quite a bit of research, found out that one of the the uh, richest ingredients that you can find for that is fish oil, and specifically Manhattan fish oil is one of the highest in omega threes. So found a company that that makes that stuff, and we bought it, and we we grind all of our own sow and boar feeds. So we actually mixed that fish oil in um, with with our boar feed. And it was crazy, you know, since we started doing that. It, it takes, you know, spermatogenesis takes a little while to begin with, and it takes one cycle of that once you start feeding them this to see the results. But after about six to eight weeks, it, it's crazy to see the boost um, whenever you actually have a semen counter and can count that stuff, um, what the increase would be. And, I mean, that makes a big difference whenever you've got a boar that's really hot and the demand's high. If, if you can do something that can allow you to to make another six, eight doses of collection on that dude during peak season, I mean, that can quickly pay for itself on a boar that's, you know, say $300 a dose. So um, that was something that, that we did that seems like it's made a, a big difference in what we do. That's very interesting. I, ha I hadn't heard that. I'm, I'm happy that you explained that to me, though. Um, fish oil. Hmm. Does it? Do you know if any other, uh, if that works with, like every other species? Do people use that often? Is this a is this a common thing that people do? Well, I don't know about other species necessarily because, you know, especially when you get into ruminants, the way that they digest uh, nutrition is obviously quite a bit different. Yeah. And all of my research was exclusively done in wine okay um, but you know i think about humans there's a lot of humans that take fish oil as a supplement you know 
you can buy at Walgreens or Walmart. And uh, there's a lot of obviously positive, positive benefits that can come from it. Um, but specifically in hogs, uh, there's no doubt this makes a big difference. And the other thing is, is bumping their protein up makes a big difference um, when it comes to this uh, sperm production. That's very interesting. I wonder, um, I feel like in humans, if fish oil did that, fish oil would be selling pretty hot. <laughs> I feel like there would be a, a commercial uh, uh, like late at night on Cartoon Network to be like, go buy fish oil, fellas. Your wife will love it. I don't know. Uh-huh. I feel like that would be very well known, you know? <laughs> yeah. Either that or she won't love it after she has triplets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either one of those two. One of those two. Oh, gosh. Dang. Well, that's it. So you you focus specifically on hogs in your master's program. Uh, and, and that makes sense to me because you've kind of you've been into the hog deal, specifically the hog deal for a while now. I mean, you started you started showing when you were nine um, and then started raising hogs when you were 13. So you I mean, you started it with the hogs and kind of never let them go. Yeah, the only thing I showed outside of pigs growing up was uh, a couple of pens of commercial heifers at the county fair. But, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know anything about show animals, period, until I was nine years old. And uh, there was a good friend of my dad's that lived three houses down whose kids showed pigs at our county every year. And they were kind of the family to beat in our area. And I think they were they were over at our house for a fish fry one night and the guy's name was Randy and he told my dad, he said, you need to get that boy into showing pigs. So my dad actually showed hogs for a couple years in high school. Um, my dad was kind of a, a city kid that liked to race dirt bikes and managed a rock band and <laughs> got into FFA somehow or another whenever he was in high school and had a really good ag teacher Went and bought him a couple spots to show. Really enjoyed it. Um, decided to try to breed some hogs. Bought a couple spot sows. Kept them at our ag farm. Got them bred. And one night, someone jumped the fence at our ag farm. Came in there and killed all his sows, all the show pigs in the barn. And hauled them off for meat. What? And no one ever caught the guy or anything like that. Well, you know, just like that, my dad goes from diving into the hog deal to completely out of it. And that was kind of the end of his experience there. And obviously not a very good one. So How fast old forward, was he at, the, at that time? At that time he'd have been a senior in oh, high school. Senior in high school, dude, that sucks. Yeah. It's terrible. Some people in this world, it just makes you wonder just what do you do? I know it. I know it. But I, I guess back to the story, you know, fast forward 20 years, 1998, um, Mr. Schaefer convinced my dad to let me show um, a pig at the county fair. We, we didn't know anything about modern show pig genetics, appropriate housing, feed, nothing. We were as green as you could possibly get. We were the family that people make fun of at their county fair. We were those people. Um, but we... Decided to do it. Got a couple of pigs from a guy that lived about an hour away. And went to my first county fair, and I was 8th out of 10. 
And I remember being pretty tore up about it. And, you know, I guess at that point you can either make the decision, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. That was a bad experience. Or or do we want to try to make sure that we we get better? And I don't know, just something inside me said, hey, let's let's keep going. I, I definitely don't want to end that way. And uh, the next year we got hooked up through a family friend with Rory Delm. And Rory lived a couple hours away. You know, we, at that point in time, everybody was, we had started to kind of meet. They were like, you need to go to Rory's. If you want the good stuff, you need to go to Rory's. And, you know, around the year 1999, year 2000, Rory was really starting to take off. And we were able to kind of get in with him and got a couple good pigs the next year, went back, and we were, I think I was third at the fair. Um, fed a pig. Improving. Made big improvements there and then put a barrel on feed for San Antonio, went up there and didn't realize how lucky we were, but made the sale in the crosses at San Antonio with the barrel from Rory. And from that point forward, we just started kind of putting a few more pigs on feed and I was just eat up with it. You know, there's that saying that says the two greatest days in a person's life are the day they're born and the, the day that they realize why. And there was just something in my young life doing that that just clicked that pigs were my passion. I, I loved everything about it. And within a few years, you know, I guess I was 13. My birthday rolled around. My parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I told them, I said, I want a bread sow. I want to kind of take that next step. I was really starting to get fascinated with the genetic side of it. I'd stay up late every night and read boar magazines and, and memorize pedigrees. And it just fascinated me. And I'm sure to their reluctance because um, my dad was a full-time row crop farmer and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, there were some years in the late 90s, early 2000s that weren't too friendly to farmers. So money was pretty tight. But somehow or another, my dad found a way. We went up at that point in time to West Texas Boar Stud, to Russ Bases, um, and went there to buy one sow, ended up leaving with two. Um, because he made us a pretty good deal and started out, I guess that year would have been 2002. We bought three farron crates, used farron crates, set them up underneath a, a tent that you buy from Sam's underneath a tree in the backyard. Rigged up some flush pans that ended up running into one of our septic tanks. And just like that, I was a pig breeder and in the pig business. You betcha. That's sweet. I, I honestly, when you sent me that uh, little bio before, I was I, I was reading it and I laughed when you mentioned that you asked for a bread sow for your 13th birthday. Yeah, and you know, that's like for dirt bikes or things of that Yeah, nature. exactly. I'm like, what 13-year-old is going <laughs> to ask for a bread sow for their birthday? But I, I'm going to be honest, I'm we might have just given a lot of people uh, some ideas for their birthday coming up. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. There might be a lot of bread sows selling soon. Bad thing is those bread sows selling now probably sell for a whole lot more than what we <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> I think you're right, actually. I, I think you're probably right. From 2002 to now, it's going to be a little bit uh, big difference in the market little price probably. <laughs> yeah. No, but that, that's, a, that's a way to go full bore into it. I mean, you go there looking for one, you come back with two, get the whole deal set up. Now, when you guys were – starting to Pharaoh, um, 
what was your mindset going into that? I mean, because I know uh, it, it's kind of like that um, that old thing you hear at the fairgrounds. Oh, this family's going to start breeding, and then somebody says, "Oh, they'll get out of it after the first time," you know, just because no one really knows how much work it is. Did did your passion stay along for the ride with those two sows farrowing at the same time and and having to deal with that whole process? You know, I was that really rare kid, I guess, that, you know, even now I'm, I'm 31 and I'm probably just as passionate and competitive and driven as I, as I was then. It just never really left me. And, I, and there's probably a lot of things luck wise along the way that allowed that to happen. You know, I was very fortunate those first two sows, we had pretty good luck farrowing them. I think one of them, you know, raised seven, the other one had like 14 and raised 12. And, uh, we were able to find a few guys locally that, that bought most of those pigs from us. And we had the reserve grand at a local show with one of those pigs that came from those first two litters. And, you know, if, if those certain things hadn't happened, it probably could have got pretty easy for me to get, get dismayed a little bit, but you know, a year into it. And I remember I, I wanted more. I remember begging my dad saying, Hey, I want to, I want to try to get more sows. If we can maybe get a couple jackpot gills for me to show, then make sows out of, you know, that'd be great. And, you know, at that point in time, that next summer, that was before really the whole industry went, went full blown internet. Um, and at that point in time, there was a weekend in Oklahoma in June where it was a huge bread gilt sale weekend. Um, I don't know if you were, if you remember that or not, but that's back in High Point's heyday and in Triple B Sire's heyday when, especially High Point, they'd bring, you know, 50 to 100 bread gilts down and they'd sell them. I forget if it was in Chickasha or where exactly it was um, there in Oklahoma, but they'd bring all those gilts down and they'd have a live bread gilt sale. You know, nowadays that doesn't happen at all. Everything is, is online. And for obvious reasons, I mean, it's it's hard to transport bread sows around, especially in 100-degree heat, like those guys had to do at that point. Um, but that next year, we made that run, and we went up there for Triple B sale, and then we went to High Point sale. And, man, especially after that, I was completely hooked. And and uh, it wasn't long after that, you know, we had, we'd bought some gilts to, to show, and happened to buy a, a Duroc gilt from, uh, from, I'm trying to remember who it was from now. It's a fella in the Texas panhandle, uh, Robbie Phillips. Robbie Phillips, Robbie, shout out. Kind of getting going uh, at that point in time up there in Leveland. And he came down to a cell with a set of red gilts in Decatur, Texas. Dad and I went up there and we bought a red gilt there for 800 bucks. And I remember we jackpotted her all season, and we never did any better than second. Um, she was always kind of right there, but never would win. I don't think she once ever got a piece of her breed or even won her class. Took her to San Antonio. I think she was third in the guilt show at San Antonio. And sometime between that month, between San Antonio and Houston, that guilt just did the right things and maturity did her well and she, you know, she'd eat 10 or 12 pounds a day and was just massing up like crazy and, uh, went to Houston and she ends up winning the whole guilt show at Houston. Oh, wow. 
And at the same time, we had a York Yelp that I had raised um, that we jackpotted a bunch and had gotten along great at jackpot shows. And you could show two gilts at Houston, and she ends up reserving the Yorks. So we win the Durocs, reserve the Yorks, Duroc wins the show. I mean, it was just kind of one of those magical days as a showman that you don't ever really forget. And those two right there, whenever we were able to bring them back into production, kind of really started to allow us to establish kind of a purebred uh, game plan there that kind of took off for us. So that stretch from 2002 to 2005 was really a a cool stretch for us as we were kind of building and and kind of taking off. Yeah, it's important to have like those really influential wins right at the beginning. I mean, as much as everybody says you don't need them, you, you kind of do. You, you, you definitely do. You need that little boost of confidence every now and then. And I see it especially on, on my end now as a breeder. When I am able to acquire young families and get them on the team and on board, you know, it's, it's good for them to have growing pains. And, and I think it's a good thing at times to fail. You know, as much as everybody nowadays wants their kid to constantly be a winner, you learn way more about yourself when you lose, uh, I think, than anything. But that being said, I think whenever a family or a program, a young breeder, you invest so much of yourself into something, I think it's, it's vital at some point, you hope fairly early in the process, you get a taste of winning and get one of those signature wins because I think it's so important for just driving motivation to kind of take that next step. I 100% agree. And, and like your story from earlier, I mean, your first year you got eighth uh, out of 10. And just like you said, I mean, it was, you had two decisions in front of you. You could either kind of quit and be pretty, it would be pretty easy to quit at that point, or you can try to be better. And, And that's a crossroads that, Kids face every day when showing livestock or in any other sport. Uh, yep. And it, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting concept that isn't really talked about that bunch or that much. No, it's not. And, you know, regardless of who you talk to, the most successful people in, in probably any business will tell you that they failed as much as they've succeeded, if not more. And I'll tell you, for anybody listening to this podcast – that maybe doesn't know me very well, you know, we've had some success, you know, whether it between, between raising livestock or, or whenever I was judging. Um, but I'll be the first person to tell you that I have lost infinitely more times than I've won. Um, but if each one of those losses, you know, I can remember you have those bad days and you kind of sit there and you, you recollect on what happened. You try to collect yourself figure out what you did wrong, and, and you you kind of have that choice. And I would say none of our successes would have been possible had I not woke up the next day and said, okay, we're going to go try to fix those things and keep pushing. You just got to, in anything in life, if, if you want to do something that no one else has done or, or no one else does, you've got to do something that no one else will do. And part of that is just constantly overcoming failure and to, to keep pushing and mentally p- propel yourself over the hump that's a good thing to live by honestly i mean just keep going keep going through the failures uh and, and 
eventually, hopefully you'll get some success. It's, and it's so hard for, I think it's hard just for, I, I know when I was like 14 or 12 to 18, when I was showing pretty competitively, I couldn't really think like that. It was hard for me to think like that. I, I wanted to win every single show I went to. I wanted to get a banner at every single show I went to. If I didn't win showmanship, I was a little upset. Um, that was my favorite. If I didn't win market, it was okay. But showmanship, that was all me. I was pretty upset with myself if I didn't win showmanship. But now looking back, I I don't even remember the times that I won. I don't remember the times that I lost. I can tell you like who I hung out with there at the show. I can tell you like what friends I saw there that I hadn't seen in a while. That's that's really what it comes down to. That's and that's what people need to realize, especially like young people that are showing these days. You're not going to remember the wins or losses. That's not like maybe with pictures. That's about it. Social media. You're going to remember uh, like the experiences, really. For sure. Yep. I totally agree with that. You know, there's, they always talk about in sports, you know, we keep doing these sports metaphors, but they talk about as a quarterback, you kind of have to have a short, short term memory and you got to be able to forget the last play if it didn't go well. It, it's a lot, a lot of times that way in, in everything that you do. I mean, and this livestock deal is no different. I mean, you could get your butt kicked and your teeth kicked in at one show, but you go to the next one and you may win. Uh, yeah. Just got to keep going. Whenever I get my butt kicked at a show, I go to unitedharvest.com. Unitedharvest.com has a catalog, a menu, like a bunch of steaks that you can pick and choose from and see what you like. Go to unitedharvest.com today. Just look at what they got. It, it won't hurt. Go to their website. See what they got. And if you decide you want to get some of their high-quality meats, uh, whether that be the Wagyu Angus Cross uh, lamb or Hooterite pork. Use friends fifteen in the promo code to get fifteen percent off. Capital friends fifteen. Go to unitedharvest.com today. Now, when did you start judging? Did you start judging as soon as you started showing, or did you kind of get introduced to it later? It was about the same time I started showing, and to be honest, <laughs> it, it happened on a whim. That first county fair that we discussed, where I was eight, three days later. Uh, they had a livestock judging contest, and I knew nothing about it. Nothing. I, I mean, to the point, I didn't know how to fill out a card uh, or anything. My dad comes up to me while we're feeding my pig that Saturday morning about 7 o'clock and says, Hey, they're having a judging contest here. Starts at 8. Um, I signed you up, so you need to go over there and meet with the 4-H leader. I don't even remember who it was at the time. And they'll give you whatever you need to give or whatever they need to give you for you to compete in this thing and and uh, just give it a try. And I'm like, you know, nine-year-old panicking, like, oh, my God, what what is going on here? Well, I go over to that pavilion. 4-H leader gives me these cards, kind of gives me a crash course of how to fill them out. I go into this judging contest I had to ask so many questions to the group leaders trying to figure this whole deal out from (laughs) things of judging animals from left to right from behind on the cattle and the sheep to how to read the pig numbers with, with the marks on their backs and all that good stuff. Well, when the contest was over, I think I mismarked two of the six cards and I, I, I never 
definitively looked, I guess. And at that point, judgingcard.com didn't exist yet. So yeah. <laughs> I'm sure if I wasn't last, I was really close You probably didn't it. care about the results is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. but we, didn't, we didn't really hang around for the results. We kind of knew how that was going to go at least. But that was kind of the beginning. A couple of my, my friends at the time did it. And I honestly don't know. It's been so long ago. I don't even know if I really liked judging when I first started. Um, but I had one of those, one of those dads that just made me keep doing it. And I think he probably had done enough research to know what good could come out of it, whether it be, you know, a future with college scholarships or whether it just be the ability to, to make decisions and speak in public, things of that nature. But he just kind of kept pushing me. Well, we got a new 4-H coordinator, I think when I was about 12 or 13, that that started more aggressively pushing us and uh, going to some different contests and, and competing a little bit more, had a little success at kind of a local level. And then I would say the biggest stepping stone for me in judging was when Ryan Rathman started those judging camps at A&M whenever he was coaching there around 02 or 03, I went when I, I was just like, just hit the age barrier on the bottom end to be able to qualify to go. And I went, and uh, my roommate was Micah Dorsey, and kind of became friends with Micah. A lot of people know Micah now as you know running Dorsey cattle there in the Texas Panhandle. And went to judging camp, met Ryan. Ryan was really kind to me and, and kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And I would say more than anything, one person I met that really changed my life at that point in time at judging camp was that was whenever Kelton Mason was judging at A&M and I met Kelton Kelton I think you know pretty immediately took a liking to me just because of my passion for show pigs we had a lot in common um, I think he saw a little bit of probably himself at that age and me and uh, he kind of took me under his wing and really learned a lot from him during that trip well when I got done with the A&M judging camp that year, I mean, my whole mentality on judging changed. I was aggressive about it from that point forward, and kind of the rest is history. I went to camp every year after that until I graduated. Um, progressively saw myself become more competitive at every contest we went through while I was in high school. And whenever I was a senior in high school, you know, compared to a lot of kids, I wasn't nearly as heavily recruited um i hadn't really won a big contest per se um i knocked on the door a little bit and won some smaller ones but uh uh brant poe at blinn reached out to me and uh brought me up to campus there at blinn uh i met doug pierce just kind of really fit into that environment and that atmosphere there. And it was within, you know, a couple hours of home to where my pig deal that was gradually getting a little bigger and a little bigger, I could still um, go home on the weekends and kind of manage that. So that was direction I ended up heading. And, you know, from there, it just really took off in college. It's interesting what those camps can do to your psychology, because I kind of had a similar uh, experience I really liked, I, I didn't mind judging. Uh, and in Arizona, like there wasn't a bunch of judging kit, like there wasn't a really competitive set. 
Um, so I got to hang out with all my friends when we would go and stuff like that, but I never really saw it as a sport until I went to, until like somebody was like, Hey, you guys should go to Connors for a camp. I'm like, ah, that sounds pretty fun. And then once I realized after that, like two or three days, whatever it was, I realized, Oh, this is like, this is like a game. This is, this is like a, a sport. I mean, there is formats. There is, there is accurate ways that you can look at these classes i mean there's a set of skills you have to go into for each class and it wasn't until that camp that i realized oh like this would actually be cool to be good at (laughs) like honestly it wasn't until that camp where i was like oh i got a format for reasons this is interesting i usually just go up to the reasons taker and just one two three four this is why i like them you know it was a life-changing experience for me and I would say, you know, once I got into college, it became even more evident that it is a game, you know, and and the quicker that you grasp that concept, the quicker you'll be pretty good at it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've meant, I've admitted this on this podcast before, I think, but I never got it. I never, like, I never figured out like how to walk up to a class and try to figure out what the committee was trying to tell me with that class. I never got it. And I I think I, I mean, I've judged a couple shows. I, I really, I think I'm accurate in my description of livestock. But I just never got the committee trying to tell me how to place this class and how to look behind, like, what they're trying to build out of it. I never got that game. It was very interesting for me. And I never realized that I didn't get it until after I was judging. When I was judging, I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. I, I know what I'm doing here. But it wasn't until after judging, I was like, oh, well, you never really like mastered that sucker, did you? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. Because I've thought for a long time, the process is almost kind of backwards. Because if you judge shows first, and then you competed on a live set judging team, it would simplify it so much. And make it, I think, so much easier. Because I think the biggest thing kids do is they make it too complex in their head. Exactly. Um, and once you start judging shows, you start to realize it's as simple as that one's good, that one's bad, that one's average. Yes. Just apply that in a judging contest. You know, you only got four animals to worry about. When you judge a show, you might be judging classes of 20 or 30, 40. Yeah. You know, if you don't have that quick, that one's a great that one's great, that one's good, that one's bad, that one's average. If you don't have that ability to, to evaluate them that quick and label them that quickly, you can really struggle judging a show. Well, if you can just have that same approach when you're when you turn around to a class of four, man, it can simplify things so much. 100%. If anybody tells me, and I don't know why anybody asked me for judging advice, don't ask me for it, but if anybody asked me for it, I've had a couple people do it, I always tell them, if you're going into a contest, and I know every coach says this, but it might work if I say it. Just trust your gut. Just like the first 30, 30 seconds to a minute, put them in a line, mark your card, and just see how the day goes. Just just go through a contest and just mark your card within the first minute and see how the day goes. Like what what's it going to cost you? Pick, pick some small contest that doesn't matter and just see what you're going to do. Something we always preached at A&M when I was coaching – was that those 12 minutes that you have to judge that class are truthfully your worst enemy because you don't need near that long to play something. Yes, yes, you're so right. You have to be self-disciplined enough 
to go in there and to place them as quickly as you can. Spend some time getting what you need to for reasons, but at the point that you think you're about to start second-guessing yourself, you need to walk away and, and just start working on your set or something like that because, you know, and I'll put it in, into this perspective too, you know, oftentimes the coaches get the best read as far as how to place classes more so than the guys on the floor judging, and if, if you're judging 12 classes in a contest, you know, two rounds of six or three rounds of four, whatever it may be, and you get 12 minutes of class, you know, you're, you're at 144 minutes of evaluating those animals. Those coaches, when they get turned in to, to get a glimpse of those classes, you know, they might get, if they're lucky, a couple minutes of class. They're having to run from one class to the other before those committees start removing all those animals. So as a judger, you're getting 144 minutes to judge that contest as a coach, you might be getting 20. Um, there you're, you're supposed to be able to place them that quickly. It's not supposed to be any harder than that. And as I went through the whole coaching process and then even afterwards, now that I've had the opportunity to be on a couple of the collegiate judging committees, you know, that's my biggest advice. I'm sure there'll be some judging kids listening to this. And that, that'd be the advice I tell you is that your worst enemy is, is those 12 minutes. Discipline yourself. You've been trained to, to sort them faster than that. If you're judging a show, you're probably going to sort them faster than that to begin with. Just yeah. keep it simple. and Don't let yourself, don't let your mind be your enemy. Yeah. I completely agree. And it's so easy. And I, you're probably right. Judging kids probably are listening right now. And, and I hope that they take this advice. But it was hard for me to take this advice because, like you said, you, you go into that 12-minute class and you feel good about your placing one minute, one or two minutes right off the bat, and then you start writing stuff down, and then you start really digging into them. And then you're like, oh, well, I don't know if I like this uh, area better than I like that area, and uh, I don't know if I like my priorities over here. And and just stop, okay? Your Your eyes will find quality and your eyes will find bad quality. I mean, that's that's the simplest way that you can go about it. You, your mm. eyes will find it. Just trust. Yep. Me. Exactly. Yeah. When you were when you were coaching and and you found uh, a, a kid that was just having a hard time, like just having a really hard time getting the mindset that we were just talking about. Would you be was was it frustrating to try to get it through their head? Were were you just very adamant about trying to get them to take it fast? Don't look at the class for too long. What was your from a coaching perspective? You know, I'm going to preface probably my approach a little bit to it with saying this: just like in sports, not every person. It is built and wired to be great at lifestyle judging. There oh, are yeah, 100%. kids that get it, and there's some kids that just don't. And I've seen some of those kids that just don't that work harder than anybody, and they try. You, you, you just look at them, and you're like, man, I wish, I wish our best kids had half the try in them that those kids have. But you know, they'll just probably just never fully get it. And, and I, do, I do believe that. I don't mean that to be rude necessarily, but I think that's life. Different people have different talents, and there's just some some kids just struggle with understanding 
and being able to to see how a class is supposed to come together way more so than others. But I do think that, that one of the biggest things that I think helped me help the kids that I was involved with coaching a bunch um, just to try to see the big picture was we made kids turn in two-minute cards a lot. You know, we'd give them 12 minutes to judge a class, but they had to turn their card in within two. And it's, it was amazing to me. We actually experimented with it a couple times in contests to where, you know, they turn in their card like normal uh, to, to their group leader, but they had to have our placing written down within two minutes in their notepad. And it was amazing whenever they did that, you know, how, how much lower their score dropped in a good way, you know, numerically, their drop off the floor improved when they had so much more limited time to place the class. I think that, that helped probably as much as, as anything. I think that, and, you know, trying to, to teach kids an approach just for evaluation, that sounds real generic and broad, but just kind of having a place for them visually to start on the animal, to go up and forward, to get a read on everything like they need to. There's some kids that you had to go back to that, that elementary of an approach almost to ground zero and retrain them a little bit. And we saw a lot of good results from that. Um, you never know, especially at the senior college level. But at that point, those kids have had so much different coaching. You know, they can almost get a little mind screwed themselves just because they've had so many different philosophies thrown their way. And sometimes you got to, hey, let's wipe the slate clean a little bit, go back to ground zero and rebuild. And that seemed to be pretty effective on some kids. Well, I was about to ask you that same question that you just said. I mean, when you say wipe the slate clean, you you guys were coaching at A&M. Those are senior college judging people. I don't even want to call them kids. They're adults uh, at that point. They've had, I mean, if they've been really into it, they've probably had six or seven coaches at that point or something like that. I, I'm A lot of philosophies thrown into their head. And I remember in, in junior college, my coach, uh, Jeremy Burkett, he would always say, I'd rather have a kid that hasn't even been coached before. Just maybe a stock kid that has been showing, but has never had a judging coach before because then I can teach him my way. He, he would always say that. And I, I'd have to agree with him. I, I think that that is an easy way to go about it. I mean, when, if there's not that many philosophies involved, you can kind of get your philosophy in there pretty easily. I would, I would completely agree with that. Yeah. You know, it's, by the time you get to senior college, I mean, those kids have had so much, they, they've seen so many classes. There's not much they haven't seen. You know, your, your biggest job as a coach oftentimes is just trying to get them to remain simple enough to see the big picture and not be their own worst enemy. You know, that and, and managing basic team dynamics like personalities, you know, uh, it's kind of like Phil Jackson when he coached the Lakers in the early 2000s. I mean, when you've got Kobe and you've got Shaq, you got all the talent in the world. You just got to make sure they don't kill each other. And that was a big part of, yeah. you know, what you have to do as a senior college coach, especially. Is, is Gosh, so that, that sounds so difficult. Yeah. Honestly. Yep. You know, you yeah, get. You probably have old. those kids that are have been in it for a while and they think they're all kind of hot shit, you know. Um, yeah. And you got to you got to get them on the same level as everybody else, maybe. Yeah, you got to get them to be a team player, um, and, and that 
sometimes is is one of the biggest challenges. I think most senior college co- college coaches would agree with that. I mean, if you get a really deep team put together, you know, you may get some incredible in-house kids. You may get you five to eight junior college All-Americans, and you've got all this talent. And you got to figure out how do we make all these guys coexist? Because he thinks he's better than her, and she thinks she's better than him. And you got to get them to all see a, a holistic team goal and, and adjust and focus towards that. It's difficult, trust me. Who is the uh, who's the goat of uh, senior college livestock judging or livestock coaching? Senior College of Collegiate Livestock Coaching, I think, is about as, in my opinion, as undebatable as the the yeah, goat of on. basketball. I know you people know on James way too much credit at this point, but just like Jordan's the goat of basketball, Ryan Rathman's the goat of senior college livestock judging. You betcha, yeah, hundred percent. That that was that has to be my answer as well. I will fight you on uh, LeBron sometimes. Uh, LeBron Michael controversy. I think uh, we don't have to have this on the podcast, but it's just two different sports that they're playing at this point. But whatever, it's fine. Yeah, and they're they're totally different players. Yes, I mean, their approach um, and their statistics, I think, reflect that. But I'm still going with the guy with ten scoring titles, however many <laughs> all defensive teams and six six championships. Yeah, I don't know. It's a fun one because I'm, I'm diehard Jordan and, and probably right behind that diehard Kobe and then my younger brother, you know he grew up in the LeBron era, and he thinks LeBron's the best thing since sliced bread, so it's a, it's fun family banter at Christmas. I bet and, it is. It's good family, uh, family uh, holiday banter. That's what that is. Exactly. Better than talking about the politics. Yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather have the goat talk than uh, talk about politics, to be honest with you. Ever since I woke up Wednesday morning to what the news was saying, I've I've tried to to oh. stray from political talk as much as possible. Probably more out of bitterness than anything. <laughs> I just can't get on anything, dude. I I uh, I just can't. <laughs> I don't have enough time to sit on social media and read and even comment on any of this stuff. It's just it's not worth any of the time. No, it's not, and it's it's just kind of more of the same. Yeah, it is. It can get so frustrating at times. You kind of just get to where, hey, let's let's go be productive and do something that can actually benefit us on a daily exactly. basis. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I think you're right. I mean, it, undoubtedly, uh, Ryan Rathman's the goat of senior college livestock judging. Yeah. Now, if you talk yeah. about who's the goat of senior college judging or like coaching not, coaching sorry i keep mix, <laughs> mixing that up oh for sure who's the, who's the judger who's the judger that's the tough one for me i like i don't know i mean there's there's probably five to ten that come to mind but i don't know that's that's something that really doesn't get discussed much you know there's a lot of talk about the best coach but you know that game in itself has evolved so much just since since the 90s that it's it's really hard to compare i guess even probably more so than sports but i don't know I think it would be hard well it's there's tough. no advanced statistics that we have to look at you know <laughs> no no and it's yeah. 
you know, the different – you could even kind of break it up into who the best placers were versus who the best talkers were. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That, that'd be an interesting discussion for sure. Be fun to kind of get one of these guys on board uh, on the podcast that's that's coaching right now. Uh, they kind of weigh in on that and just kind of see who who their list would be at least. To me, I just don't know if, I don't know if coaches could say that. Could they give me a list if they're coaching right now? I feel like they'd be biased towards if their kids. You around, know? If they've been around long enough, you know, there's yeah there's probably some of the guys out there like Bloomberg and and Mullinex and Rathman. And, and Brandon Callis is another one that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, that have been around, you know, 15, 20 years there. Um, you know, Chris, I think, you know, he's probably been around. I, I think he judged maybe in the mid-90s, late 90s. Um, you know, those guys could probably give you a list. But I think it would be very tough to, to figure out who the best is of those lists. Yeah, that would be very, very tough. And it, it kind of changes every year. I mean, the dynamics change every year. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You said you got, you had like five to 10 come to mind though. That's good. I mean, you got, you got some in your head that you're thinking about. Yeah. I think, you know, there's some in my head for sure. And I would say that, you know, the last five years since I was done coaching, you know, I, I would probably not be educated enough on that particular age group to know if some of those maybe need to fit in there. I'd probably almost have to phone a friend to some of the guys coaching. But I would say from 2015 forward, I can maybe narrow it down a little bit. But I, I still I think it'd be tough to even get a, a top 10 list. Hmm. You know, it's it's a fun discussion. It is a fun discussion. I think you're right. We'll have to get one of those. I, I want to get Chris on anyway. I think, I mean, he's got you so need much information. On. You know, he's probably, at this point, since Dan Hogue is done, he's probably the longest tenured judging coach. You know, he would probably have the most perspective on that. Um, but, yeah, if you could get him on there, I think that, that'd be a 30-minute talk right there in itself. Probably. Probably. Well, that was a mighty tangent. Let's get back to you. Because <laughs> um, I want I want to uh, – kind of have you shout out what you guys are doing now and, and try to plug everything that you guys are doing. So as much as possible. So what, what are you, you and your dad are partnered on uh sows and some land and yeah, just farming uh, and raising hogs. Pretty much. Uh, you know, me and dad farm about, I guess right now about 2,100 acres of mostly corn and cotton. Um, and then, you know, when I first moved back, I mean, the big goal was let's, Let's see what we can do with the pig business. We never really pushed on it that hard and, and promoted and advertised. And I honestly didn't realize, I don't think in my wildest imaginations, I could have dreamt what it could have been in such a short period. But uh, I, when I moved back, we had 25, 30 sows. Today, I think we're up to 85. And, and the biggest reason we're not any bigger than that is because our facilities have kind of constrained us at this point And uh, to get any bigger, we'd have to invest a huge chunk in, in multiple different barns that we kind of just don't want to right now. Um, I think 85 is kind of a happy number for us at this point um, that I can kind of manage predominantly by myself um, and do a good job at it, obviously. Um, but, man, it made a big jump quick, and 
went from just kind of selling pigs primarily within about a 200 mile radius to selling pigs from, I guess, California all the way to Florida now. Um, so that's gotten big. Uh, that's got to be exciting just to watch it kind of grow right in front of your eyes. Yeah. From a 200 mile radius to sending pigs all over the country. That's got to be a good feeling. It was a good feeling to kind of see, you know, your baby grow into an adult. Um, and it, it was more of an explosion than anything. It happened pretty fast and pretty aggressively. And probably the single, you know, one thing that helped it tremendously, that the first big investment I made when I moved home was a boar that we bought from Kobe Burger that we named Manchild. And that boar was really a big cause of the explosion. He was super popular that spring, sold a, a lot of semen on him. In that next spring, he won a bunch, and it kind of allowed our boar stud to kind of get a foot in the door and kind of find its place in the grand scheme of the marketplace. Um, and it allowed us to, to kind of have a boar that I could plow through and kind of develop a sow herd with an identity and a similar build. Um, that we could start kind of moving forward and trying to make some specific genetic decisions on that we can improve with and, and build upon. So, How many did you keep out of him? How many gilts? Oh, that first season. You know, I'd say within a year we went and, and probably at least had 50% of our herd and his daughters. And he was... It helped too that he his probably greatest strength was making females more so than even making boy pigs. I mean, I'd say his gilts were superior to his barras. Um, so that even lended more towards you know female production and making sure we got a lot of quality daughters out of him. And those hogs, those gilts, uh, just had a, a very distinct look. Their proportions and their design was very unique. And I still get told by people today, you know, when they think about our hogs, at least in this part of the world, you know, certain people are known for certain traits. And I'd say our hogs are probably more so known for their presence and their design more than anything. And I would attribute a large part of it to the man-child influence on the bottom side of the pedigree. It's got to be nice to have an in-house boar like that. I mean, that's kind of a gift right there in, in itself. You know, it's... it's it, at the time that I bought that boar, what we paid for him, I like to have choked to death. I mean, it was a huge investment right out of college. As excited as I was to own an animal of that quality, I was equally nervous um, that, gosh, I, I hope this boar is well-received. I hope that he'll he, he'll generate those that kind of money back, at least in pig sales. Well, I had no idea that you know, his popularity would be so strong that I think that boar, you know, quadrupled his money in semen sales just the first season. Oh, you know, wow. it really opened my eyes to if you, if you're very thoughtful and, and cognizant and make the right financial investment and decision, it, it, what it can actually become. And, and don't get me wrong, I've made plenty of wrong ones, but that was one of the really right ones. <laughs> <laughs> well all it takes is one right one right i mean all it yeah. takes is i mean you got to have some good ones after that but all it takes is that one to get you to that next step to that next pedestal and like you said 
I mean, he started the explosion. That that was one of the that was one of the antidotes to the explosion that you were talking about of your guys' marketing and your guys' dis- distribution of hogs. So, I mean, yeah, it takes one, but a pretty good one, you know. <laughs> it does, and I'm still very thankful. You know, the burgers, um, just in the last year, they've had the Granite Santone and the Granite Our State Fair their deal has just, you know, exploded as well. And, you know, that I really appreciate them giving me the opportunity, obviously, to, to get my hands on a boar like that and be able to use them within our herd. Um, it, it was certainly a blessing. Yeah, definitely. That's, I mean, that's a, I don't even want to say a blessing in disguise because you knew it was going to happen, but that's got to be a huge investment right out of, right out of college. I mean, um, I mean, you were kind of nervous about it. I mean, especially buying livestock, you never know if they're going to turn out or not. I mean, he could have shot out duds, you know, so it's nice that it worked out. It's very, very nice. (laughs) I was listening to one of your podcasts a little while back with, with Jesse Heimer on it. And I remember listening to him talk about swagger and I'm sure it was a similar situation. You know, at that point, you know, Jesse was just kind of getting rolling again back in the pig deal and you kind of just hang your hat on one that you really like and hope it works. It's just, you kind of go with your gut. And that was a lot of what Manchild was. I mean, I, I, I still to this day just genuinely like that kind of hog. His build and his proportions and design for making show pigs are pretty timeless. And you just kind of think, man, I just hope this works. I pray it works, but you just got to have some faith. And I'm sure that probably most everybody that's ever hit it big in this livestock industry probably can pinpoint an investment in their youth getting started that was kind of like that for them. Just kind of hope it works. Yeah. And we were on the fortunate end of, of an investment that did play out in our favor. Yeah, that I mean, it definitely worked out in your favor. And you, I mean, you've, um, I mean, kind of ran with it. I mean, that's what you got to do too. If you hit one of those uh, kind of gold mines or, or an elevation and and what you guys are selling to, you got to just kind of keep running with it. And I, I like what you did with Manchild and, it, and you kept most of his daughters, like you said, and, and just tried to make your own identity with your herd. Because I think that's super, super influential when uh, customers are trying to find a new breeder to work with. It's really nice if they have their own kind that they can kind of distinguish themselves uh, different from other breeders or other producers. I totally agree. I think it, and that relates across over multiple different, different things, you know, the concept of branding and building an identity. And that was something that, uh, you know, I, I give Heimer a lot of credit again. I mean, he kind of paved the way when it comes to that in this industry of, of creating your own image and I think that it's, it's vital. People need to be able to associate you with, with something. A logo, a kind of animal, a certain type of livestock, you know, uh, the, the way that you treat people, your customer service package that you provide, you know, all that kind of goes into it. It takes a long time to build a brand, but it can pretty quickly be tore down just like a reputation. Um, but most of the the really elite guys in this business, whether it be cattle, pig, sheep, goats, they, they've got a brand and people quickly can associate them with it 
and they know that whenever they drive up to that guy's place, they know what they're about to look at, the genetic backing behind it, and what they're capable of. Uh, speaking of brand, you want to shout out all your social medias right now? Uh, kind of what we use. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, what, what you guys use. Um, Facebook and Instagram primarily. Uh, I'm personally on Snapchat, but we, we try to do most everything through Facebook. Okay. That's been, that's been our most useful, probably marketing tool that we've, we've ever gotten our hands on. Um, we've got a pretty big following on Facebook. So if anybody's listening, love for you to go over and like our page, obviously, and start following what we're doing. And that's uh, HF genetics. It's HF genetics. That's right. HF genetics on, on Facebook and Instagram. You want to give out your Snapchat, your personal, are you feeling frisky? I don't know if I'm feeling that frisky. <laughs> you mentioned it. I was wondering. Biden just got elected, so I got to be careful. Yeah, you got to be careful with your per- your with your privacy now. They're listening. Yeah. They're listening to the show with Cannon Brown, the Agriculture Podcast. Have you watched the Social Dilemma? <laughs> uh, yes, I have. I have watched a couple episodes. I was terrified. Uh, Man, that was make- terrifying. <laughs> It's fine. Well, Cassidy, I appreciate you taking time uh, to kind of sit and talk with me about your deal and how you how you came up. I appreciate it, and I think I think people are going to resonate with it. And I appreciate you kind of going in depth on the on the judging deal with me. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Um, I've watched your show here for a while, or followed you, I guess, on Facebook and listened to a couple of your podcasts, and always thought it was pretty neat. I mean, there's very few opportunities where you actually get to kind of listen to what goes on in a person's mind for an extended period. And I know there's a lot of people in this industry that are, that are pretty far up the food chain that people love to do that, would love that opportunity with. And I mean, obviously through your platform that you provide, we're able to do that. You can get a lot of, a lot of good stuff to take away and try to implement in your own program with that. So I think it's pretty. Well, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate the support. We're going to try to keep doing it. So (laughs) we'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again, and and I will talk to you later, sir. Okay. Sounds good, Ken, and you have a good one. You as well. Bye. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. I really appreciate Cassidy's outlook on just kind of overcoming things. He related a lot of things back to sports. I appreciate that. I'm a dummy, so I need to be kind of have some analogies laid out for me. And I just think his mindset in terms of overcoming obstacles uh, that come in your way or failures is absolutely incredible honestly and and i really appreciate cassidy for coming on i i hope you guys got something out of that and and go check his deal out go check his social media pages out they do some some great great things and and offer some special deals for you so go check them out hf genetics whenever possible also check out the other podcast legendary mindset with jake p richardson Cattle Pros with Jake Scott, or the Keeper Pin with Maddie Caldwell and Jenna Wheeler. Yeah, you bet. I did a little quick ad for the network. I uh, hope you guys don't mind the ads too much. Um, I told you it was coming. You, you knew it was going to happen at some point, okay? So you just kind of go, got to go with it now, you know? I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your November. I'm going to talk to you next week. So you'll hear my, you'll hear my voice next week. Or if you're listening to this six months from now, Hey, how are you? It's November now. 
So when you're listening to this in April, here's a nice surprise. Uh, but everybody else that listens week to week, see you next week. I love you. Be safe out there. And uh, yeah, howdy doodly. <laughs>